this past Thursday night with uh, nearly 50 people, Euro-Americans and Dakota and Lakota and Ojibwe and some of you from this church, we were all gathered downstairs in our social hall for this second community conversation about Bede Makaska, the body of water that we currently call Lake Calhoun. This is the second gathering we've had. We had one in October and then this one this past week. And these gatherings, these three-hour-long gatherings, have been hands down the best meetings I have been in all year. I'm in a lot of meetings, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and they're all good. They're all doing important work. But these meetings have been exceptional. And the, 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 there's a number of reasons, but the primary reason is that we are gathering together, like we did this last Thursday downstairs, a group of people in one space, a group of people that have never been in a room together and have never had a conversation with one another. So we're there talking and listening and dreaming with one another about a bold future of new and restored relationships, about what could be possible. The conversations we're having go far beyond the name of the lake. That conversation last Thursday and the one in October deeply nourished my spirit, but I went into that gathering. I went into that gathering with a very heavy heart, heavy with the pain of the terrorism of mass gun violence and gun violence in general, heavy with the pain of justice delayed for our brothers and sisters of color and the pain of seeing this peaceful encampment at the 4th Precinct be bulldozed in the early morning hours just a few days ago, heavy with the pain of the indifference and silence of those who could help bring about change in our world if they would speak, if they would act. So I went into that meeting feeling heavy, as I suspect some of you have been feeling. And I had these words from Pope Francis ringing in me on Thursday afternoon before I went into this meeting when he said, we are close to Christmas. There will be lights. There will be parties, bright trees, even nativity scenes, all decked out while the world continues to wage war. It's all a charade. The world has not understood the way of peace, end quote. Thursday afternoon, I felt like Christmas was a charade. And perhaps this is the tension we face every year in this season. Perhaps it is even part of the Christmas story. In fact, one year ago, a colleague of mine, the Reverend Cecilia King, wrote this on her Facebook page, and it captured how I was feeling this past Thursday. It captured how I was feeling a year ago in this season. She wrote this. I cannot live in the world as it is. It's too heartbreakingly awful. I am heartbroken over the killings of my black brothers and sisters, heartbroken over the depth of violence against women and children around the world, and sick and terrified by the continued destruction of our planet and the suffering of the poor that climate change is already causing. My heart cannot bear anymore. But it's precisely this heartbreak, she writes, into which the gospel news enters, the story of Christmas. This moment, she says, the scandal of Christmas 
is what I'm clinging to, she says. The scandal of a low-born brown person who stood up and sang truth and invited others to do the same. A peasant laborer who taught resistance to the domination system even unto death. I can't live in this world as it is, but I am not supposed to live in this world as it is, she says. None of us are. Do not give up, she says. Grab hands with someone else and hold on tight. All we have is one another and our unwillingness to reconcile ourselves to these horrors. Hold fast, my friends, she says, and keep singing our song of that great love which holds all. That's what I was feeling last Thursday, that heaviness. And it was that place of the season, of the heaviness and the hope that I remembered again why I cast my lot with you all, with this faith, with this community of people, why I cast my lot with this spirit I believe is alive in the world, this spirit which death cannot destroy, which, which is a light that darkness cannot diminish. I remembered why I cast my lot with you all. And it's because I cannot live with the world as it is nor am I supposed to. And it is only with you in relationship with one another and with others outside of these walls that I begin to feel any sort of hope that another world is possible. This is the work of the season we are in right now, this season of Advent, this season of waiting for the arrival of hope. Author John Buchanan writes, In Advent, we slow down and we wait and we sit in darkness. We wait for a child of promise to be born in a manger or for the light to return. And we remember that the future that child promises is not only coming, but is also present in the life of the world if we can watch and wait patiently for it. The kingdom is here, as Ruth said in her sharing story this morning, waiting for us to see it and embrace it. John Buchanan goes on to say about Advent, it is not passive waiting, sitting around just whiling away the time. Advent waiting is living into that future, leaning into it by praying and working for the coming of what I would call the beloved community or the kingdom or the kingdom of equals. And for that beloved community to come, we have to do the hard work of hauling out the stones that stunt our emotional and spiritual capacity, the stones that dim the light of hope. We have to haul out the stones and the tree limbs that trip us up, that block our path. We have to pull out that spiritual debris, the stones of indifference, of hurt, of stagnation, the stones that say it can't be done, the stones of complicity and silence, the stones of thinking we know who someone is because of their name or the way they look like. Many of those stones have to be pulled out so we can see and feel the world anew. And here's the kicker, the truth of all of this. We can't haul out stones, especially the boulders, without one another. Hope and healing, a new vision for the world, isn't generated in isolation. 
As the poet writes, a half dozen times that summer, we sat, we sat, he weeping, hauling out stones, gathering limbs, I near. He said, it's the crying part, I couldn't do it by myself. And later he said, I think I've done it. We can't haul out stones without one another. And sometimes the person that helps us get the stone out is someone we least expect. I'm reading a book right now that's called, If You're Lucky, Your Heart Will Break. Field Notes from a Zen Life. If you're lucky, your heart will break. Field Notes from a Zen Life. And there's a story in this book from a man named Paul Evans. He's a blogger, and he shared this story. Paul writes, Panhandlers were on most of the main streets in Clifton, this neighborhood in Cincinnati where I lived from 1990 to 95. They were quite a nuisance, all these panhandlers, especially when they set up shop by ATMs and by payphones. You can tell this is the early 90s because there's still payphones. <laughs> I made it a point, he says, to never make eye contact or acknowledge them. One night, a bearded street person in his mid-60s came up to me and actually clutched my sleeve, grabbed at me, clutched my sleeve and said, young man, do you have any money for dinner? They always needed it for a cup of coffee or bus fare or for a meal, never to buy booze. That was how cynical I was, says Paul. Man's grabbing him. No, I don't have any money. I said, using a tone that telegraphed to him the matter was not open for discussion. Well, for God's sake, said the 60-year-old, get yourself something. And he shoved $5 in my pocket. <laughs> well, for God's sakes, get yourself something. And the bearded 60-year-old man put $5 in my pocket. And before I could fully comprehend, says Paul, what just happened, he disappeared in another direction. Now, it's a unique experience, I'm sure, but in that moment, I believe that for Paul, who tells this story, a large stone got hauled out of him, a stone that had these words on it, words that said, homeless people are alcoholics, are liars, are less than human, are subhuman. I don't need to look at them or acknowledge them, but that stone in that moment got hauled out, and the world was upended, and when the world came back together, everything was different. That's the moment we're in right now. This scandalous Christmas moment, scandalous, where hope is found in a newborn babe or someone we least expect it or a street person, someone without a home, someone without a title, scandalous hope in this season waiting to be born. Dar Williams sings about this scandalous hope, this song, going back to the 90s, when she talks about the Christians and the pagans sitting together at the table, finding faith and common ground as best as they were able. It is scandalous hope to have Christians and Jews and Muslims and Unitarian Universalists and pagans and others finding common ground, taking out the stones of prejudice and judgment, old belief. This sort of scandalous hope is more likely to happen when we haul out those stones of pain and anger, stones of fear and resistance, so that we might catch a glimpse of the world that could be and the people we might be in that new world.
so that we can find our note to sing in that song of great love that holds us all. This is what is happening, friends, with the scandalous hope that is at the center of the Black Lives Matter movement. Put aside for a moment whatever you think about the tactics they might use and consider the beloved community they are creating. The old stones being hauled out of the way. Stones about who's worthy to lead a movement. These are all women mostly leading this movement. Stones about who matters and whose life matters. Stones about who belongs at the table. That movement is a justice-seeking movement with a radical love at the center that is calling in transgender people, that is calling in gay and lesbian and bisexual people, that is calling in labor unions and Latinos and Latinas and the Minnesota Nurses Association and teachers and people of faith and many more. The Black Lives Matter movement gives us a glimpse, a scandalous glimpse of hope of what a new world might look like where all lives really do matter. And this past Thursday, feeling heavy, heavy-hearted, I caught a glimpse downstairs as we met, a glimpse of a new world as this healing and generative conversation took place between indigenous people and Euro-Americans. In that circle, the old stones, stones of assumption, stones of ignorance, stones of not knowing our history, stones of being afraid we'd say something wrong or make a mistake, they were hauled aside and we made a clearing where we could catch a glimpse of the world that might be. This is the lesson of this season. Advent waiting is not passive waiting, sitting around, whiling away the time. Advent waiting is living into the future that is not yet here, leaning into it with prayer and work and words and trying to create the beloved community. In this season, as we prepare our gifts for Beacon Interfaith Housing Collaborative and our ritual of giving, which is two weeks from today, we will take a small step toward building the world we dream about because I can't live, and I don't think you can live, in a state where every night 4,000 youth are homeless, the majority of them in the Twin Cities. I can't live, and I don't think you can live, in a state where there are families without stable housing, where formerly incarcerated men will not find a home unless Beacon and others build it. We just can't live in that way. So in this season of making room, may we haul out the stones of indifference and the stones of believing we cannot make a difference. May we haul out the stones of doubt and hopelessness. May we prepare ourselves to give the gift of home to the youth and families and men that Beacon supports. May we prepare our hearts and find ourselves singing our note in that great song of the love that holds us all. May it be so, and amen.